This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. For the last time this year, and I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. PK, it's the final days of this parliamentary year. It's going into overtime to try and get everything done that the Albanese government either promised or wants done before we all head into some kind of summer break. So let's just rattle off a few of the things that have happened since we last met. After years of debate and disagreement, years, a National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NAC, has been established in law and will be up and running by the 1st of July next year. This, I think, is a huge reform with the potential to change the way politicians, public servants and the private sector do business, you know, less cosy, more sunlight. I think a very good thing. Then we had the government's Respect at Work bill also passing this week, designed to help to eliminate sexual harassment, violence and discrimination from the workplace. The Labor bill included every single one of the recommendations from that report from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, which was a huge piece of work that found harassment in workplaces across the country was prevalent and pervasive. And last and most contentious, I think, the government's IR bill will go through this week after a noisy and pretty nasty debate sometimes. Independent Senator David Pocock pledged his support finally after securing a promise to establish an expert advisory committee to review and publish social security payments and other payments before every budget. A sort of a keep the bastards honest mechanism, which he thinks will make a difference. So, PK, a big week to end a big political year. And that's just the policy news of the week. There's plenty of politics to this week. Oh, what a week, honestly. I mean, whether you like the legislation or not, and I know there are divided views, particularly on industrial relations. Some people love it and think it'll get wages moving. Others think it's obviously largely business I'm referring to here, think it's... Um, you know, it's too cumbersome on business, too much red tape. It'll cost them and are concerned about it. But whatever you think of, you know, the substance, this has been one of the most productive periods of the parliamentary period and a government's agenda that I've seen in in a really long time. And it's been successful on all the benchmarks that the government set for itself, including getting its industrial relations legislation passed by the end of the year, which I thought was really ambitious. I wasn't sure they would get there um, because it was so ambitious and there was uh, contention around some of it. They were able to get the support of David Pocock. And I think that is actually quite an extraordinary political win for the government and also means that it sort of clears the decks for them going into the summer period so that they don't have to be, um, if you like, you know, straddled by this will they or won't they, you know, lobbying campaign about this bill. So sorry to interrupt you, PK, but it's interesting, isn't it, how um, you then and and I think generally we're talking about this as a you know, successful few months period for the Albanese government. They had all these wins. But I guess the success is going to come 
on what it achieves, this IR bill, will it lift wages, which is the promise, isn't it? And, of course, we can't judge that yet. We won't know that until probably 12 months hence to see if it's done anything to shift wages, which have been pretty stubbornly stuck for, for a lot of workers for a long time. You're right, that is the test and delivery has to be the test of, of any policy, right? But also government is about, um, you know, successful governments are about uh, looking like they are prepared to reform and prepared mm. to make changes and you've got to make the changes before there's any sort of even even attempt at actually changing the status quo. And on that front, there has been a lot of action. So I think... Uh, you, know, you could criticise style or nuance or all sorts of things, but broadly um, to actually have a busy parliamentary agenda uh, is is significant. And this all at the same time, we're going to go to it in a minute, aren't we, Fran? But at the same time as Labor did something also extraordinary, but I think successfully didn't make it everything this week, which is the censuring of the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Yeah, and I want to come to that in a second. But just before we do that, you were down there for much of this week. You were in Parliament House in Canberra. What was the vibe like? I think the government... To quote um, the castle. <laughs> I think the government were feeling pretty pleased with themselves, but not not suggesting they were being arrogant. I'm not... You know, governments can be arrogant, I'm, but I wasn't feeling like that sort of aren't we so awesome, but they, they they felt like they'd kind of really met their KPIs. There was a sense of, <laughs> yep, we've really had a successful week. And you say we're going to go to it in a minute, but I actually think it's really key to how they were feeling. This censure motion of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was a big moment for the government because they wanted to censure Scott Morrison, um, not just because it's in their political interests, even though I think it is and there is politics here, but also because they genuinely believe that he overreached and the Bell Inquiry found that he did. Let's remind people what the censure was about. It was about, you know, you'll all remember that Scott Morrison, we now know, appointed himself to five different ministries during the height of the global pandemic and none of us knew that at the time. It was only revealed later um, when a a book about his leadership was published. He kept the the matter um, secret from all of us, including most of his own cabinet colleagues. And that's what this was about. And the Albanese government set up this inquiry, led the Bell Inquiry, as Pico just said, led by um, former High Court Judge Virginia Bell. And she found that it was um, the the move by the, the former Prime Minister to take on all these ministries, she found it likely to, quote, undermine public confidence in government. So that's what it was all about. And that's why Anthony Albanese moved forward with... It's, it's really not the done thing, is it, to move a censure motion against a former Prime Minister, Pico? Not at all. And it is unprecedented. It is extraordinary. It's a big deal. And, of course, the government was always going to be successful once it decided to do it because they have the numbers, right? But they, they Bridget Archer, Liberal MP, crossed the floor... But when you said to me what was the feeling in the parliament, I was I got overwhelmingly the feeling from Labor and Labor ministers was they wanted to censure the former Prime Minister and act on this report, but they also didn't want it to suck up the weak of the parliament. And there's a reason for that. They don't want the public to think they are obsessed with the former government, obsessed with the former Prime Minister. They know that the public knows they've been in in power for six months and that they need to be doing things. So when you say how did they feel, they felt like they had success censured the former Prime Minister without it sucking all of the political oxygen or looking like they were, you know, myopic on this issue. Mm. And on that 
measure, as I assess it, I actually think, and this is a hard thing to achieve, they were successful at not making that entirely their week. They did that, but they talked about a lot of other issues, as we say, National Integrity Commission, as we say, you know, all these other things, which are very tangible reforms, things that will change people's lives, as in restoring public trust in politics and the parliament, because you know that there's a cop on the beat that will actually be able to investigate if corruption is happening. You know that there is a mechanism for possibly getting your wages up. They're real things, right? It can't just be talking about Scott Morrison, even if he did the wrong thing, and they feel like they got the balance right there. Now, it's my assessment that I think they probably got the balance right too. How did you see it? You know, you weren't in the parliament, Fran, but you watch politics closely. Do you think they got that fine line right? Well, I actually think they did, even though the opposition was trying to paint them as a vengeful, you know, cheap shot um, government just trying to play politics with this. I think that uh, Anthony Albanese worked very hard to try and make it clear that it was the democratic principle that he was concerned with here, not political point scoring. That was his message. Um, and I think by and large, so long as, as you say, it's done now, it's gone, they can move on. I know the Greens are wanting to do something else with this. I think Labor would be happy that this has happened. They managed to have this, if you like, black mark against Scott Morrison's leadership um, sort of written into the history books. And I think it would certainly be wise if they could avoid much more point scoring because, you know, people as Paul Fletcher and others on the opposition side, Simon Birmingham and others have said this week, people are not really top line concerned with this. They've got a lot of other really front of mind concerns at the moment, interest rates, inflation, all that sorts of thing. But here's Anthony Albanese in the parliament. The former prime minister owes an apology, not to people who he shared uh, brekkie with at the lodge. He owes an apology to the Australian people. That's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there leading that censure motion. A pretty historic moment, actually, in the Parliament and it must have been extremely uncomfortable for Scott Morrison as he sat and uh, had the, his own part, the, the Parliament that he was once the leader of vote a censure motion against him. OK, PK, let's bring in Laura Tingle now, political editor with the 7.30 report, to... Take a look at what's been a pretty action-packed political year, don't you reckon? Sure has. Let's do it. (laughs) Laura Tingle. Well, you know who she is, but I'll tell you. She's the chief political correspondent for 7.30. Welcome back to the party room. That music is just so bad. It immediately makes me so. think of daiquiris, as you know. So, but um, thank you. So, I'm looking for my swizzle stick and umbrella at the moment. You deserve a swizzle actually, stick. I, I, I know what that music does to you, Laura, because I've seen it in the flesh, and you actually get <laughs> all a bit loosey goosey when that music's going on. It's great, um, yeah. Laura. It's been the government's been in for six months. It's been a big six months. Paul Keating famously said once, "If you change the government, you change the country." Have we seen that? Do you think in what the new newish Albanese government has been able to manage? Will the laws they've managed to pass so far change the country? Well, I think they change a lot of things, uh, Fran. I think that they do, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and list all the things they've done because you've probably already done that, but they are significant uh, changes, particularly the industrial relations change, I think, has the potential to really sort of clear uh, some paths to um, not just higher wages, but you know, more functional workplaces, which would be a really nice thing. Um, The uh, Anti-Corruption Commission, you know, fantastic. We sure need that. Um, uh, And, of course, there are the broader things about the way we conduct politics and the national conversation. And I think 
that has changed. And I think it takes a while for people to really understand that change. I mean, we, we're always looking for the big bang changes, if you like, but uh, I think you know, in the way the media ch- sort of talks about stories, um, the way politicians approach an issue, you know, the whole not feeding the chooks thing, um, I, I think all of these things are really significant changes and will take a while to percolate through. But I think I, I sense that there's a really material change in those conversations already. You're right. We did list all of the achievements because there are lots and mm. there's been, it's been a busy legislative agenda and uh, we expect in the next couple of weeks also even busier because the government will have to try and sort out uh, the energy price issue and, uh, you know, dealing Nightmare. with lowering prices. Nightmare, that's mm. <laughs> exactly, mm. which is difficult. So it has been busy, but it's been also, I want to go to its negotiating style because you can't get legislation through unless you... Uh, get the numbers. And in the Senate, of course, they don't have the numbers. They've been able to successfully negotiate, for instance, with David Pocock, who's become a bit of a kingmaker. Mm. What what does that tell us about, you know, how, what, how does that bode for future negotiations too? Is he going to be helpful to the government's broader agenda? Well, he's an interesting character, isn't he, David Pocock? I, I mean, he's, uh, I think he's a very... Really seri- interesting, I reckon. Yeah, an actual serious person. As they say, he's not looking for horse trades. He actually wants to listen to pe- what people say in Senate inquiries and takes it all on board, um, has quite a flexible mind. I mean, I think this idea he's got of the um, panel that will look at, um, at welfare payments is sort of quite left field in the traditional scheme of, you know, trading and negotiating on things. So um, I think he will be an interesting person to watch. Uh, I think the interesting thing also is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, okay, if you're Anthony Albanese, you want the Teals to be successful, but not too successful. You want them to keep the Liberals out of those seats that they won, but you don't want them to become a threat to Labor. Um, So, I mean, I thought it was really interesting that um, the government gave absolutely nothing to uh, Helen Haynes and the House independence on the National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation because it wouldn't, wouldn't have cost them that much just to give them, you know, a little something just to sort of in, in acknowledgement of the fact that they'd, they'd pushed so hard for this to happen. But no, they didn't. Uh, they're not frightened to sort of leave people a bit um, unhappy uh, in the negotiations, uh, but to keep them sort of in the tent. And I suppose that you can sort of see that if you take it out to the sort of level of stakeholders um, the uh, and the speech that Anthony Albanese gave to the Chamber of Commerce and Industry uh, this week, he's essentially saying, look, you, you didn't get everything you wanted, but we're still talking to you. And right through that industrial relations negotiation Essentially, business was pretty happy with it. Um, you, you wouldn't get that because you're always getting the reporting on what the really filthy, dirty um, uh, point of contention is. And um, there were some, but nonetheless, uh, the amount of um, common ground or ground on which everybody happily negotiated was substantial. And most of the people in the business community, as you two would know, would say, look, we're basically happy. You know, we've got a relationship with the government. We actually think that's a value. Yes, we don't like this stuff. Um, and our job is to say that we don't like it and we, we will be on the um, case if it doesn't work. Uh, but, you know, he, Anthony Albanese is sort of basically maintaining relationships across the board, I think.
Mm. I agree with you on David Pocock. It was so interesting to watch such a, 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 a you know a young politician and a new politician um, play this so well and so earnestly. And I don't mean play it as in it's a game, but just mm. sort of go through the motions, take his time, consider it publicly for all to watch, have community meetings and really looked as though he wasn't coming to this with a fixed position. He really was in the business of making legislation better and we've all got to be, you know, hopeful that that continues. Um, does the same go for the Teals? I mean, I know you mentioned there that the government didn't give them anything really when it came to the, the uh, integrity bill, though much of it was based around Helen Haynes's private member's bill, so in in a mm. sense, she got a lot of what she wanted. Oh, but, yeah. you know, there was a lot of talk about the last election delivering a new look parliament. The crossbench grew to 12, I think it is. The, the teals emerged at the expense of the Liberal Party. How effective can we judge yet is that crossbench and are the teals actually being at dealing themselves into things? Is the government giving them the respect that they think they deserve and have won or not? Look, I think uh, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw the um, the piece on Monique Ryan that ran a few months ago and she sort of exposed herself as sort of, you know, having to learn learn the tricks of the trade on the run. And I Just spoke to a lot... the Four Corners piece? Yeah. 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 And, I, I, and I, I spoke to quite a lot of the Teals this week and they're basically pretty happy campers. I mean... For the, uh, a lot of the new ones in particular, you know, it's it's um, there's been this whirlwind of, you know, what's a disallowance, you know, what are we voting on, mm. all those sorts of basic things of actually understanding what's going Imagine on. Imagine trying to learn all that in the hurly-burly of question time, which is, you know, really loud when you're down there. Yeah, um, but just the processes of parliament um, and somebody like Monique Ryan, who's a really, uh, you know, well-regarded specialist in a particular area, but is suddenly having to, um, as we do every day, suddenly become an instant expert on everything. Um, it's mm. it's a real learning experience. So my sense is that they're all sort of just getting to that point where they're going, all right, you know, dust is settling. We're looking around and seeing what's happening. Um, really looking back on the year and going, wow, we did this. This is amazing. So um, they are learning those arts of, you know, how do, how do they most be, you know, become effective um, as they go as well. Um, it's a little bit harder in the House because the government obviously does have firmer numbers. But I think their very presence there has transformed the House of Representatives. I mean, it had just become this moribund <laughs> place mm. with tumbleweed running through it. Um, <laughs> and there are now, there is now more a sense of vibrancy in the debate they feel included um, in the in the conversations with the government. The uh, the continuing um, MPs from the crossbench people like Zali Stegall, I think, you know, all note the very different tone of uh, of the of the parliament and of the chamber. Uh, you know, brackets a better one um, that you know it's it's become a more civilized and intelligent place um, and a much you know much less. Uh, unpleasant place to be. So um, I, th I think that they're still sort of getting the hang of what they can do, given they're in a slightly different position on numbers. I mean, the interesting thing for them in a way is that most of them have, have come in on reasonably narrow platforms like corruption, climate. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you go, okay, well, we've got the corruption bill out of the way. What are they going to talk about now? So, um, and there's always plenty, but um, they, they're just going to have to work that out, I think, and um, I, I reckon in, in another 12 months it'll be fascinating to see how they individually um, mature into the jobs they've got. I think that's mm. right. And one thing um, 
that they might focus their attentions on, and I know a couple of them already have in a private meeting with the Prime Minister, is the campaign on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Now, it will Mm. formally begin next year. The government wants the vote in the second half of next year, and if you look at the sitting schedule as I have, and I'm sure you've studied it too, Laura, I've thought, when are the windows of when they might go to this referendum? Mm. Look, it feels like an ambitious timetable given... There is still a debate about how much information is out there and and, and how um, the government will conduct this. But this week something quite significant happened. The Nationals announced unexpectedly uh, on the last sitting week of the year, I didn't see it coming, um, that they would campaign against The Voice. Here's the Nationals leader, David Littleproud. As the men and women who represent regional, rural and remote Indigenous Australians, it was important that we got comfort with the fact that this would close the gap. And unfortunately, we've got to a position where we don't believe that this will genuinely close the gap. So the National Party has made a position that we will not support the voice. And we just say to Australians, this is a respectful conversation. But hear those voices from regional, rural and remote Australia, not just those that might be in Redfern, because this is an important moment in our nation's history. And unfortunately, it will be lost. So, Laura, we've had eight successful referendums in our history. All have had bipartisan support. The Nationals, the junior coalition partner, kind of shocked many with this because up until this point, it would be the line had been, we need more detail before we can conclude our view. And mm. the Liberals are still officially saying that. What's going on here and how significant is this? Look, it is significant. Um, I, I mean, I suppose if I if you look at the the broad arc of this, uh, Anthony Albanese, part of his uh, the confidence he's got in himself, I suppose, as a negotiator and as somebody who can manage a, an issue, is that he has basically said, "Okay, I've put the draft wording out at Gama. We've got all these processes about how we go about this in in train. I'm happy for it to be out there and." And not only that, but I think it's got to be something that everybody embraces and debates amongst themselves. But I'm not going to be prescriptive. I'm not going to put a lot of detail out there up front. That was always going to be high risk, always. Um, and um, what's happened this week sort of shows the risks of that. Now, uh, he was saying on 7.30 this week that uh, he's still talking to David Littleproud. I was mainly surprised by the apparent definitiveness of the Nationals' position on this. I mean, you know, to to come out and say, look, we've, you know, we should indicate that we've got serious problems about this, you know, just just a tweak of the words um, so that they weren't digging themselves so firmly in. Um, I think, you know, it is disturbing. Um, it does create all sorts of issues for um, for the Liberals, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but it was probably realistically, I suspect it was always going to be the case that this was going to have um, a really big blowback um, as an issue uh, just because there are lots of people who are prepared to sort of scare people about it. But the mm. the question becomes, will the nature of the body as opposed to the constitutional question be clear when people go to the referendum? Now, my expectation has always been that, yes, that would be the case from everything that every, everybody said, that we would know what it was, that it wasn't ATSIC. I mean, ATSIC had its own budget to spend on on doing Brand stuff. programs. Yeah. yeah nobody's, nobody has remotely suggested that's the case. And the language about um, out in the bush versus Redfin and a lot of the language that David Littleproud was 
using was a bit of a hark back to the ATSIC um, controversies of the 1990s. And um, I think if... I don't think it's an absolute death blow necessarily, particularly if the Teals are, are pushing the case. But I think without a doubt the, the the crucial thing, I mean, Anthony Albanese says, look, it's, you know, it's this is actually about what the people think, not what about the parties think in terms of the referendum. And it, um, that is correct if people um, have enough information to say, look, there is a question about you know, recognising Indigenous people in the Constitution, one, but the nature of this body which will sort of be able to become a platform to discuss the sorts of issues that they have difficulty discussing because just of the nature of their communities um, is another thing which the, the Parliament controls. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's a death blow. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think a lot of people are shocked by, as you say, the definitiveness of the Nats' position. The campaign hasn't even formally started. It will kick yeah. off next year and that was the point Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, was making. She also made that point that, you know, it won't be politicians who decide that. It's it's we the people. Mm. But the, the Nats leader, David Littleproud, we heard him there saying, you know, closing the gap is what actually counts and it does, the Nats don't believe that the voice will help that. Mm. The reality is we got the closing the gap report this week, the latest one. It shows things improving in only four of the indicators so far. That includes healthy birth weights for children, the number of kids enrolled in preschool, uh, reduction in the rate of young people in detention, um, for instance. Um, but only four out of 17. Four went backwards. So whatever is happening now in the Closing the Gap strategy isn't enough. It's not working. And that's what no. advocates of The Voice are arguing. Well, but the absolutely. no camp... And the no camp, which includes the Nats now, and those still not persuaded, which includes the Liberals, say more information is needed before they can support it or not. Now, PK spoke with the former Liberal Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt this week, who said that um, particularly Liberal front benches already have the information, that the information is there in the number of reports that have been done by the former government um, for anyone to get what they need to know to back the Yes campaign. Let's have a listen to Ken Wyatt. There's four pages that if people read them, they would understand the detail. Now, I took this report to Cabinet twice. So people who were ministers at the time would be fully aware of this report and what is obvious with the National Party is they have not read the report and have not given an Aboriginal voice to Parliament an opportunity to be aired and to be listened to and to be implemented. So I thought that was a pretty interesting intervention by the former Coalition Indigenous Affairs Minister. He was the now, minister till May this year. That's very yeah, recent. Look, now, look, four pages in a government report is not the same as an information campaign and that does need to occur. Mm. But those some of the politicians who are saying they don't know they need more information to make this decision, by Ken Wyatt's reckoning, have had the information for some years now. Well, uh, yes, and I mean it was a really, really fascinating interview. I thought, um, and you know, a much more sort of a, not strident, but a much more forceful um, a sort of argument from Ken Wyatt. Now that he's sort of freed of the wonders of the Morrison cabinet, but um, it, he was talking not about what the public knows, but about the fact that the people have been going out and making these, um, you know, really uh, wide-ranging uh, declarations this week. You know should be better informed. They have no excuse not to be better informed about this. And I think this whole point about closing the gap is 
No, I mean obviously uh, it's it's a it's a really easy thing to say for people who are sort of, you know, dubious about the you know the people who say to you, oh well, I don't like a special power for for one race in being in the constitution, and besides, you know, I want to see something practical. So it gives gives people something to sound like they still want to do something positive for Indigenous people while not giving them what you know, the Uluru Statements ask for, which is, you know, uh, not all that much. Um, but I, I think um, the, the closing the gap thing, uh, the glaring problem with, with that, of course, is uh, that, as you say, Fran, it's been going backwards. Um, why you could argue that, you know, you want to do something about closing the gap when you've been in government for a decade and you've been unable to do anything about it and you're not prepared to consider that, maybe listening to Indigenous people's suggestions about what you should do would be a good idea is not clear to me. So we are at a really important juncture, I think. Um, The Nationals' decision, um, if you'd listened to Noel Pearson, and he he also spoke to us on RM Breakfast, and it was quite the interview where he Mm. said that Jacinta Price, who is an Indigenous woman who's entered the Nationals' party room, has been the, the sort of game changer and is very opposed to The Voice, what sort of impact does that have, uh, do you think, Laura? I mean, she's an Indigenous woman who clearly um, is emerging as one of the big no campaigners. Does Is that a really big disruption to any yes campaign? Well, it's. Um, I suppose I don't look at it as a disruption to the yes campaign, but presuming that there was always going to be a yes and no campaign, you know, she is a very powerful figure in the no campaign, without a doubt, for the reasons that uh, Noel Pearson says. You know, she is an Indigenous woman. Um, you know, she's, uh, you know, a, a very uh, forceful advocate. Uh, and, you know, and people can say, well, look, you know, even Indigenous people uh, split on this and uh, and therefore, you know, y- you know, you don't have to feel bad if you don't like it. So without a doubt, um, you know, it, it's a very powerful thing for uh, the no campaign um, and uh, for for the nationals now, uh, the I think the interesting thing will be. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I just think that even beyond this issue, the Liberals are in a world of pain at the moment. Uh, and Peter Dutton, who isn't a political idiot, um, but seems to be pretty lost at the moment in terms of uh, tactics. You know, whether it's tactics in the parliament, whether it's um, strategic decisions about what he should what he should do on any particular issue. Um, you know, he seems to be sort of trying different things, but not with any clear view about where he's heading. Um, I think the interesting thing to me about what he's done in response to the Nationals this week, which is, you know, if, if he and the coalition as a whole lock in and when they lock in is going to be the really interesting question. And uh, the Nationals, you know, have gone for product differentiation for the moment. Uh, but and Peter Dutton said, "Well, we're we're taking our time on this." But you could see in question time this week that he was starting to uh, sort of uh, bang the indigenous disadvantage um, drum. Uh, so you know, it, it's disturbing to see where that goes, and it's hard to see how he can not follow the nationals. But you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how the government also just tries to position. Um, whether they sort of say, well, you know, Peter Dutton is basically being dragged along by the Nationals and try to make it a negative point for him. Mm. So far they're being really strategic still and really um, trying to still keep 
Petered up potentially in the tent. You hear them try and compliment him, and I just noticed some. Tactics. Sorry, you're talking about the government. Yeah, the government's yeah. sort of still trying. They're still mm. trying to at least build bipartisanship. I spoke to Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg also on RM Breakfast this week. He's obviously been a prominent yes proponent for some time, but he says, you know, they still need the government needs to outline the model um, and. You know, joint parliamentary committee or something to set up a, a model that they put in legislation. That's mm-hmm. one call. Yeah, let's have another committee. You know. uh, well, the other call, <laughs> though, is that he says they need a conscience vote, right? So it yeah. seems that even those that wanted a yes vote um, know that that's going to be too hard to land now. And John Howard has recommended that they don't go down the conscience vote. Is that inevitably, though, where Peter Dutton will have to land to appease like the moderates and, and the hardliners? Oh, look, I, I really don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be speculating on that one, uh, Patricia. I, I, I mean, that, that would sort of seem sensible, um, but um, I think it's really hard to tell. But I'd, I mean, I'd, I don't think there's any way um, uh, Anthony Albanese is going to be, you know, putting this to a parliamentary committee. I, I think, you know, he's got all of these processes, these reference groups and everything else uh, lined up. Um, I think he will um, look at uh, legislation who will sort of use those groups to um, to outline a model for what the body will be uh, and um, and then we'll campaign from that base well it's going to be a big uh, issue and a big story obviously it's going to be the story I think of 2023 if we're having a constitutional referendum on whether to include reference to the first Australians. That's going to be a big moment for this country and we'll, uh, we'll yeah. see how that plays out um, in amongst a lot of other things to be done and there's going to be a big story about the economy next year too, of course. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a huge year. I hope you can have a great summer. And while we're talking summer, just a couple of summer reading suggestions. You've probably read some of these already. Um, Laura, Nikki Savva's exploration of Scott Morrison's leadership is called Bulldozed. It's been making headlines with some quite surprising quotes from some of the former PM's closest colleagues about their old boss. And also Catherine Murphy's quarterly essay on Anthony Albanese called Lone Wolf, which, you know, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but it seems like a terrific psychological and political analysis of the new Prime Minister. So, you know, plenty to read. Could I suggest a couple of other things, Fran, for people who are sick of reading about politicians? I mean, yes. I, yes. both of those books are fabulous. Um, but uh, I was on the panel which uh, judged the inaugural political book of the year this year, and uh, neither of those, you know, met, met the cut-off date. But I think uh, our winner was absolutely superb and uh, would uh, inform people uh, massively going into this year of, of um, the referendum. It's called Telling Tenant Story. Uh, and uh, it's by Dean Ashenden, and it's about uh, black and white Australia, sort of through the prism of Tennant Creek, but with the most um, comprehensive history I've ever read of the whole history of policy making around uh, Indigenous affairs, um, and everybody from Bill Stanner to Nugget Coombs and Charlie Perkins, right through to um, more contemporary debates like the one about um, recognising the frontier wars at the War Memorial. It's absolutely uh, an absolutely s- superb read and I'd really recommend it. What's the name of it again? It's called Telling Tenant Story by Dean Ashenden. Also, Fantastic. Um, Alan Beam's book on foreign policy called No Friends, No Enemies. Absolutely wonderful book. Great. This is good. Laura, it's great having you as always. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for, for giving us an intellectual feast over the summer too. <laughs> See you, Laura. See you. We'll move to questions without notice. 
I'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time, our final question time for 2022, although we're going to have a lot of question times next year, so don't despair. And here's the question. It's from Dr Daniel Garcia. And he says, hi to both of us, long-time listener. Since this is the final pot of the year, what was your biggest political surprise of 2022? And what's your bold prediction for Ospol in 2023? Ooh, that's always dangerous, giving bold predictions. OK, I'll go first, PK. Um, biggest political surprise for me of 2022 was the success of the Teals. I mean, I thought there would be a couple of Teals elected. I was not I was not prepared for that whole sweep. Um, I didn't think Josh Frydenberg would lose his seat because I'd actually been in Kuyong in the final week of the election campaign and that was sort of not certainly not the vibe in the treasurer's camp at the time. In fact, I think it was not the vibe early on in that week of either camp. Um, so that was, for me, the biggest political surprise. Bold predictions, as I say, dangerous in politics, but I've already made this prediction on the podcast. I think the government will move to water down, if not scrap, the stage three tax cuts. I don't think they'll scrap them all together. They'll find a way to uh, renovate them, shall we say, and recast them. That's my prediction. And she has gone on some of my themes, so instead I'm going to find new ones. <laughs> uh, they're good, good ones. Okay, in terms of biggest surprise of 2022... I think the the collapse, and it's a broader observation, and it, it does talk to the kind of it's it's teal themed, but it's bigger, is the collapse of the liberal vote, particularly among millennial voters who now make up so much of the voting population. So I've recently, as people know who listen to this podcast, really been focused. I'm, I am a Victorian on the Victorian election. Now, I know Victoria, you know, the Massachusetts of Australia, it's a particularly progressive state. But the collapse of the Liberal vote amongst young people, I think, is a remarkable political story and really goes to an existential crisis for the Liberal Party that in 2023, a bold prediction, um, they are really going to have to grapple in a very substantial way because on on the basis of the way they organise their party, who they pre-select, the kind of policies they have, they um, are making themselves quite unelectable in metropolitan Australia, particularly among young people. And given those voters are a bigger voting slice and they are skewing more progressive, they feel disenfranchised, they've been locked out of property, they don't feel like that part of politics represents them. It's a diverser country, a younger country. I think the biggest story of 2023 politically, other than the government managing its issues, but in terms of a very big historical political party is going to be the Liberal Party grappling with its identity and how to match the needs of a different electorate to the one that they were established for. Now, I don't have a prediction in terms of what conclusions they will come to. But my my view is that you will hear more and more voices who are feeling bolder and bolder on that side of politics saying we really need to change or we will die, which is what we're hearing more. So th that's kind of a surprise and a prediction at once because it's a surprise that I didn't quite, um, I knew that there was demographic change, but I didn't know it was, it was going to collapse quite like it has. And that goes to your teal point, but also the Victorian election, I think, showed some of that. So that was surprising and I think there is some kind of story that will emerge next year out of that as well. 
My more clear prediction is this. Next year we're going to have, as we've been discussing, a referendum on a voice to parliament. It's going to be a big moment. My prediction is that we're going to see, and I think this is exciting, a brand new generation of young Aboriginal leaders emerge who will become household names like the likes of Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson are now, but younger millennials and younger who will be at the forefront of this yes campaign. I cannot predict whether it will be successful or it will be defeated. A lot has to be play out, played out still to see what will actually emerge there. But what I can predict is that you will see a brand new generation of people who will become, I think, yeah, potentially even household names in this country. And I think that will be quite a game changer. Generational change, as it has in terms of the electorate, will be delivered in uh, Aboriginal affairs as well. Well, let's hope so, because we've had, you know, some excellent Indigenous leadership in this country up until this point. So let's hope that keeps emerging and I'm sure it will. And that's it for the party room from us for this year. And what a year it has been, PK. I feel like, you know, when we get to it eventually in a few weeks' time, we deserve a summer break. But, gee, it's been such a fascinating year, hasn't it? Not only for politics, if you think about the flooding crisis, all of the other news around the world, the war in Ukraine, it's been an enormous year. And so for all of the people who've listened to this podcast, thank you so much for being long-time listeners. If you're a newer listener, we love you. Thanks for coming here. Tell your friends. We will be back in your feeds next year. And Fran, I hope you have an excellent summer. What have you got planned? Uh, well, you know, not not a lot, actually. I'm just going to, you know, El Nino and everything, it's hard to make plans. I'm just going to uh, stay low and hopefully get in a lot of swims. But, you know, I'm uh, like you said, I'm in a lucky position. There's so many people who've had such a tough time this year with the floods. Um, for all of you, I just, you know, I wish you the best of luck. I hope it stops raining for starters, but wish you the best of luck with getting things back together and hope you can have it, have a terrific Christmas despite it all. Yeah, I absolutely feel the same way. Um, I think everyone needs just a little bit of time off and I hope you get some. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.